Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In part because of Arthur Miller's play, The Crucible, and in part because of the scale of accusations, the Salem witch trials of 1692 are the most famous of those in New England. But they did not, as is often said, come entirely out of the blue. There were other trials for witchcraft in the newly colonized lands of Massachusetts and in the remote frontier town of Springfield in 1651, a confessed witch accused her husband of the same crime. The couple were Hugh and Mary Parsons, and their tragic story, brilliantly reconstructed from previously neglected source material in Malcolm Gaskell's latest book, The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, takes us not only to the dark heart of ideas about the power of witches, but to the struggles of early colonial life, where the Puritans engaged in both a relentless struggle against the elements and an internal wrestle with the forces of good and evil. People believed what they heard, he writes, less in spite of its outlandishness than because of it. Malcolm Gaskell is Emeritus Professor of Early Modern History at the University of East Anglia. His acclaimed works include Witchfinders, a 17th century English tragedy which explores the civil war witch trials in East Anglia and Essex under the direction of Matthew Hopkins, self-appointed witchfinder general, and Between Two Worlds, how the English became Americans. The story told in The Ruin of All Witches explores both of these themes. Malcolm, I am absolutely delighted to speak to you about this wonderful book. Thank you very much indeed for having me, Susanna. It's a pleasure to be here. We're old colleagues. We worked together over a decade ago, and I've been a great fan of your work. But I have to say that this latest book, The Ruin of All Witches, is absolutely superb. It's a remarkable work, an extraordinary piece of writing, and such an interesting tale. And I think above all, what I felt that it really did is it evoked for me this lost world. And I'm going to want to talk to you about how you did that in a bit. But perhaps you could start by telling us about this world that we're talking about, the town that Pynchon built, the Springfield, New England of the 1640s and 50s. Well, first of all, thank you very much for all those nice things. It's just as well it's a podcast because you can't see me blushing. It's rather an unusual town. It's in western Massachusetts in the Connecticut Valley. And it's not like the kind of archetypal, godly, communitarian towns of the eastern seaboard, some of which are actually transplanted Puritan congregations from England. But Springfield is set up as a company town, which means that it's very much set up for profit and business from the start, particularly to monopolise on the fur trade at the top of the Connecticut Valley. So it's a rather unusual place, and I think that that gives it a particular kind of competitive rather ruthless character, which filters down into all sorts of areas of social and cultural life. And like most people colonising New England in this time, there's relationships with their neighbours to be navigated, and we'll talk a lot about those, but there's also relationships with the Native Americans whom they called Indians. 
And I suppose the fact that they're engaged in the fur trade is crucial to that. Yes, it is, absolutely. William Pynchon moves from the East all this way to the West, particularly because he wants to get at the Native American fur trade at source. So this is absolutely crucial. I mean, he's a diplomat. He understands that he shouldn't antagonise the Indigenous peoples. But of course, like all colonisers of the period, he is engaged in the appropriation of their land and their resources. So he does strike a deal to acquire this territory of Agawam, which is called on the Connecticut River, and that later becomes Springfield. But Agawam, of course, is bought for a song like so many of those plantations were. And then gradually his world envelops the local Native American world and then in the end obviously replaces it, which is a familiar story all over North America. How big is this community and could you conjure up some sense of what it might have been like to live there in these early days? He's very conscious of the fact that if there are too many families too soon, they will outstrip their resources and it will just become too unwieldy. So he sets limits. So we're really talking in the mid-1640s, about 40 to 50 households, really quite small. I don't know, sort of a couple hundred people, something like that. And it doesn't get hugely bigger until later in the 17th century. So it's a community that's spread out over a couple of miles, really, like a sort of ribbon development in an English context. There are sort of differences between the north and the south of the town, but essentially everybody knows each other in the town. But there are neighbourhoods spread along this ribbon of the main road and that they have much more intimate face-to-face relationships. And I suppose all of the challenges are there of setting up a community, but in what seems a sort of, I suppose it's true of Massachusetts today, a pretty harsh environment. They're trying to grow crops, they're trying to build places in which to live. One of the crucial stories that comes out here is about needing brick in order to build places that can be insulated or have chimneys. Could you give some sense of what you know a daily experience might have been like for these early colonisers? Well, they are all farmers, but many of them are tradesmen as well. They have to make everything for themselves. They have to build. They have to till and tend. And really, this is a world where they realise, I think, how much they've taken for granted in England, or actually in Wales, many of them are from Wales, which are relatively sophisticated economically so there is a division of labor at home say between blacksmiths and bakers and so on but in Springfield initially they don't have that division of labor so men are required to do things for themselves and of course women are working extremely hard too it's really all hands to the deck because when you're starting from nothing you have to put in all the hours to try to get to some basic level of well sometimes just of subsistence So it's a constant struggle. They work extremely long hours. There are often injuries, say, just from back strain, muscle strain, because even though these are quite tough people, the work that they're having to do in America often exceeds what they were used to doing, even in England. It's a real kind of uh, risk that they've taken, I think. They've really often gambled on their existence at home rather than being forced to go to America because they had no choice. Yes, I felt that really came out from reading this book of just what an extraordinary thing it was to make this decision to go. I mean, the travel across the Atlantic was hard enough, but then when they get there, it's just unremitting work. We think we work hard now. Absolutely nothing by comparison. (laughs) No, it really is quite remarkable. But they're driven not just by necessity. In Springfield, there is this kind of competitive spirit too. So that in some of the other more, let's say, godly Puritan communities to the east, there is a sense of what's sometimes called a sufficiency. So that when you've got your piece of land and your cow and you've got enough to eat, then you kind of settle and then you just perpetuate that lifestyle. But in Springfield, there is this sense that people are trying to get ahead as well. They're not content with what they have. And I think this puts a particular kind of pressure on them as individuals and on pressure on the community at large as well. One of the people who've travelled from Wales, and as you've mentioned, of course, there are many women amongst them, is Mary Lewis. How does she come to travel to New England? What's her story? She comes from the Welsh Marches region, and she is a very unhappy young woman who has been married to a Catholic who bullies her to try to make her convert. She's a Protestant, 
But I think part of that experience of being bullied by a Catholic at home, her husband, who then deserts her, is that she does actually join a dissenting Puritan, rather charismatic community still in Wales. And that people from that community, for economic reasons, but also for religious reasons, start to drift over to New England. And she goes pretty short on her own, but she does follow that trend. And there are people who end up in Springfield that she knows from her community in Wales. In about 1640, she does make the journey over. There are godly contacts in Wales. So she doesn't just get on a boat and go. She has a household to go to. There is work for her as a maidservant has been provided for her but that brings her into William Pynchon's orbit and that's how he essentially takes her from Dorchester in the east and sends her over to his new community to be a maidservant to his daughter's children. But one thing she also carries with her is this albatross around her neck of having been married before, still being married effectively, but being deserted and this is obviously a real problem for her in this godly community. It's a real problem for her because obviously she's probably in her early 30s. She still wants to get married, still wants to have children of her own after looking after someone else's children. And she's married. So this causes a kind of problem not for her, but it causes a sort of legal theological problem, I think, in Springfield, whether actually that her husband having deserted her means that she is free to marry again. Because, of course, there are concerns that she might actually be committing adultery and that the authorities might be abetting it if this didn't have legal and biblical justification. And adultery, of course, at this time in this society, a Massachusetts society, is a crime punishable by death. It's a capital crime, so that their law code very much follows the Mosaic Code. There aren't actually, in the end, that many executions for adultery, but you know that's not apologising for the New England authorities. It's still seen as an extremely heinous offence because it both symbolically threatens all that's wholesome and natural about their order of their world. They're very, very afraid, of course, of displeasing God because the Puritan mission is that they are the new Israelites and they have formed a kind of covenant with God. And although I think some of those feelings are weaker in Springfield than they are, say, in Boston, William Pynchon and the minister, George Moxon, in the community still takes that responsibility seriously. So it's very important that Mary Lewis is given permission to marry so that then she can get on with her life and it's all above board. And I think it might be worth exploring some of that sense of what it meant to have this Puritan version of Protestant faith, the role of introspection and how that affected the setting up of these communities, even if Springfield is perhaps slightly more mercantile and more capitalist than some of the others. Part of this story is it works on so many different levels. There's the kind of transatlantic level and then there's the level of the colony of New England. Then you kind of zoom in and you're in these small communities of New England. But then there's also this scale of experience, which is the inner life. And this is a particularly taxing and difficult thing for many people who felt themselves to be the chosen ones, to be members of God's elect in Puritan communities like Mary Lewis back in Britain, who now feel they have to prove themselves again through conversion experiences, demonstrating that they have God's grace inside them before their new neighbours in the new world. And this has all sorts of consequences for those who fail the test first time round, this causes melancholy, or we would call it depression. It causes often a kind of sense of inner collapse, that you feel you've gone all this way, but you're still somehow not being the person that you wanted to be, this fulfilment of the self in the new world. So this is extremely important to do, but often very, very difficult. It's interesting because I've worked on Calvinist communities who are effectively Puritan under another name, perhaps, in late 16th century France, and noted their tendency to want to censure each other. And I wonder if you think, as we move on to think about some of the accusations that came up, particularly around witchcraft, whether this culture of also inspecting the self and the anguish around that contributes to their tendency to accuse others. I think it does. I think that it's a very divisive mentality, a very sort of inwardly divisive mentality, which is often projected outwards, so that very troubled 
inner feelings about a lack of self-worth, a lack of justification, even hostile negative emotions that make the individual feel I must be a bad person or that the devil kind of has the upper hand inside me are often feelings that are very difficult to deal with. And I think that, you know, without psychoanalyzing the dead too much, which of course is always difficult for historians to do, that it's understandable that some of these hostile feelings towards the self might be reversed and projected outwards towards others. So that these are people who are hard on themselves, but commensurate with that, they're also hard on others. So I do think that the two are connected. And I suppose what really binds them together is the sense of the devil and of of attaching the devil's temptations as a cause for some of the feelings inside, but possibly also some of the characteristics which are imputed to others. And actually being hard on oneself doesn't necessarily make for a good marriage either, does it? Because the other person is an extension of self. And Mary Lewis, we know, goes on to marry Hugh Parsons, who is a crucial figure in this new town of Springfield. But as we'll see, their marriage is not terribly happy. Perhaps you could introduce us to Hugh Parsons and then we can talk a bit about this union. Well, Hugh Parsons is a very able-bodied working man, like most men in Springfield, he has to be. He's probably in his mid-30s by the time he arrives in Springfield in 1645. And like so many other men, he's been brought in specifically by William Pynchon because he's got a trade that the town lacks and that the town needs, and that's brickmaking. Wooden chimneys, you don't have to be a historian to realise that they're not a great idea. They catch fire and fire is a great risk to a community like this. So a lot of people want bricks. So that gives Hugh his kind of economic authority, I think, in the town. It's an authority he quickly abuses and that's part of the problem he faces. But initially he fits the bill for Mary Lewis. She likes him. He's taciturn. He smokes a pipe all the time, which is quite important in the story subsequently. But they are a match. And of course, it's once she meets him that Mary really starts trying to get reliable confirmation that she's able to marry him. And then things move pretty quickly. So they are able to marry. She's confirmed to be free under the sort of legal terms of Massachusetts to marry Hugh. And they establish themselves in this community. And I suppose what one immediately recognises is the complete interdependence of neighbours at this time. So they are settled very much in the south end of the town, where many of the people are Welsh, like Mary herself. And like in so many other early modern communities that you'd be familiar with, that there's a culture of men, there's a culture of women, there's an overlap. But each sex has its own world within which they must establish themselves and there are codes to negotiate and there are dependencies. But again, there are always tensions as well. So this is rather a delicate world. You don't have a choice. I mean, you have to participate in this world of the neighbourhood because that is the foundation of survival in this world. I should also say that where they are living in the south end of the town, William Pynchon and the town elites are very much up the north end. And it's not quite a north-south divide, but there's something strange and more remote, I think, about the south end. It's very close to a great tract of land that goes miles south of the town called the Long Meadow. Some people are starting to move out, there's some people starting to get land, but I think that's an even wilder place which really feeds on the imagination of the demonic and the strange down there. That's really interesting. And also, I suppose, there's something about their economic dependency, almost a dependency in every way on William Pynchon, because I was struck by the fact when Hugh does a job, when he makes bricks, and the whole description that you give of that made me feel stressed even at reading about it, and then having to make bricks and to lay them and all of those relationships, he's not paid in money, he's just paid in reducing his debt to Pynchon. That's right. So all men there have the possibility to have a house and there's land and they have work. And of course, in the old world, that's often lacking. And that means that young men can't set up their own households. So that in America, this is a fantastic thing. But of course, it comes with a almost a Faustian kind of bargain with this, because the downside of it is, is that you are dependent on William Pynchon. He is like a lord of the manor. There's something almost semi-feudal about him. 
he does draw up indentures and he seeks to release some men from their indentures from other masters in the east and pays them off early so they can come and work for him so he's a maverick in some ways but he works very much with old world bureaucratic habits and ways so he carries around this book that looks like a kind of church warden's book they would have entered the birth deaths and marriage and he had been a church warden in the old world but this in Springfield is his account book and that's where every man has an account if he does something with pension the debt goes down if he buys something then the debt goes up but as soon as the debt goes down that's sort of uh, happiness and joy and then if the debt goes up then of course it's misery so that creates this background, I suppose, this sort of low hum of resentment, of feeling trapped, of constant anxiety about the debt, which must have played into things. I think that's certainly the case. And of course, men can compare how well they're doing, partly by how much land they have, but then also by how big their debts are. William Pynchon and actually his son later on, they're quite ruthless. You know, if they don't feel that someone's going to pay off their debt, they just call it all in and ruin them. And so it's very much a dog-eat-dog world, which, again, I think is slightly unlike the character of some other New England communities. So we've got this sense of resentment. We've got ambition of trying to get ahead. And now we've got the Parsons married and setting up home. And we're back, I suppose, to this idea of constant work. Your descriptions of how they could set up home and how to try and keep everything clean and try to keep themselves fed were really astonishing to me. Can you give us some sense of that? Yeah, so again, they get up very early. There are separate roles, but a certain amount of overlap too. So there's an awful lot of picking fruit and in the kitchen there's pickling fruit and preserving meat Then there's slaughtering to be done. Hugh will often take a canoe across the Connecticut River to the planting grounds on the other side. And then if there's drought, then of course you're taking water over there constantly. There are goats to tend to, chickens, pigs. I mean, it's endless. You have to make clothes, repair clothes. You have to make furniture. If you have a child, where do you get a crib from? You probably have to make one or you borrow one or so on. So again, nothing can be taken for granted. So There are Puritan guidebooks to what a marriage should be like in the first half of the 17th century. And they say that really, in order to survive, you've actually got to kind of work together. And husband, although obviously this is a patriarchal society and the husband would be seen to have the supreme authority, the ideal is not that he's got a stick, but that actually there is mutual respect. Because otherwise, you just can't get through all this work. And that if there's love there too, then that will help oil the wheels but the problem with Hugh and Mary is that he's so ambitious he's so paranoid he's so anxious that he starts to feel that she's not pulling her weight particularly after she has her first child which she starts to seemingly resent because a woman who's just had a child for a number of reasons is not able to do as much of the heavy lifting as she was before and this is really where the rot sets in in their marriage. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As time goes on, there will be accusations made of witchcraft. And in part, these come from neighbours and in part, they come from the heart of this troubled marriage. And if we think about some of the neighbourly accusations, first, one of the things I was struck by is that you say that the fault line for witchcraft accusations, the most sensitive fault lines, lay between near neighbours of similar status. And this is such a contrast to the classic scenario of English witchcraft, of a rich householder turning away a poor widow. And actually, a real contrast to a book I've just recently read about late 17th century witches in England, which stresses the economic discrepancy between the accuser and the accused. Why do you think that we see accusations in this very different scenario? I mean, I think we need to think about the extreme anger that one sees generated between neighbours, which is actually caused by a failure of obligation and expectation. If there's a wide gulf of social difference, then maybe one's expectations of that neighbour are not as great. But if somebody is just like you and you've had this very dependent relationship and you say, give them milk and they give you firewood and no money changes hands. It's a tacit understanding that you share things. If somebody starts to step out of that and starts to resent giving something or denies it or doesn't give as much or simply just doesn't speak nicely, and I think this is part of Hugh's problem, or doesn't speak at all, which is another one of Hugh's problems. He seems to be either mute or threatening people. And again, that there are expectations that you should follow certain kinds of code. So I think it's because these people are kind of quite similar that they have very particular kinds of expectations of one another, which are actually, well, certainly for Hugh and actually for Mary, quite easy to breach. So one of the things, for example, that really starts their fall from grace, if ever they were in a position of grace, is that Mary starts talking about her suspicions of witchcraft. And that seems odd. You know, that just seems out of keeping with the normal culture and conversation of women in Springfield but you know if you're obsessed by witches then maybe there's something wrong. One gets a sense that she was experiencing postpartum depression or certainly mental ill health at a point that is colouring her way of seeing the world. Can we not diagnose that at this distance or do you think that perhaps that's going on? So many women suffer from postnatal depression, but it's possible that Mary Parsons is suffering from postpartum psychosis, which is much rarer and affects about one in every hundred thousand women. And I saw something recently, a poet, Laura Dockrell, who suffered from postpartum psychosis, said it was like being hijacked by a devil. And of course, that really resonated with me because she just didn't feel herself. And it can cause delusions and hallucinations and a sense that your mind is not your own. So again, we don't know. 
Mary Parsons does seem to be suffering from some kind of mental illness. But certainly if it was postpartum psychosis, it would fit with the kinds of things that she says and the things that she feels, and particularly this kind of paranoia that seems so out of step with the way that other women think about their world. So she starts to see witches everywhere. One of the people she suspects is a witch, indeed calls a witch, is a widow who's recently moved to the town. How does that play out? For the first 20 odd years of New England's life, there really haven't been any witch trials at all. But you're just starting to get from 1647, 1648, just one or two witchcraft accusations and trials and even executions here and there, as if it's taken this time to build up in this new society. So when Mercy Marshfield moves from the town of Windsor further down the Connecticut Valley, there have been rumours and suspicions of witchcraft there. And so Mary Parsons feels that she's brought them with her. We don't quite know why. We think, again, it's so often the case witchcraft is about children, it's about jealousies and anxieties about people threatening children. So that Mary gets into a head that Mercy Marshfield, this widow, is very jealous of babies because her own daughter hasn't had one yet. So this could have something to do with it. And really, Mary Parsons just starts gossiping about it. And of course, these are societies where gossip is a way of passing on news and it's a way of self-regulating the community. But it's also extremely dangerous, particularly if you can't quite rely on the people that you're sharing this information with. So this really starts to put Mary Parsons in a very bad place indeed. So it is tested judicially by William Pynchon. And this is where I suppose we might feel like we're seeing the modernity of the situation in that he doesn't reach a conclusion that Mercy Marshfield is actually a witch, but instead reaches the conclusion that she has been slandered by Mary Parsons, which itself is a serious act. Very much so. The trial also reveals that Mercy Marshfield, who's just arrived, has some friends. So you start to kind of see where the battle lines might be drawn. And the thing about the battle lines with the Parsons is it's always just them. And actually on the other side, the opposition just gets more and more substantial and more and more angry, more and more determined, I think, to get rid of them. Yes, so to have slandered someone else is a very serious thing indeed. So she is sentenced to be whipped, but then, as is often the case in the old world, this can be commuted to a fine, and it's a fine that's payable in wheat. Now, of course, this is disastrous in the Parsons household, because Hugh Parsons, who is desperate for work, desperate for money, desperate to get ahead, suddenly finds he's been saddled with a debt that he didn't need, precisely because his wife has been saying things that she shouldn't have been saying about one of their neighbours. So this is yet another nail in the coffin of their marriage and makes him even more furious, and he's pretty furious to start off with. Whenever as a historian, or even indeed as a friend, one is trying to decide you know, who's right and who's wrong in a marriage, it's very hard to tell. And in this case, it feels like there are recriminations on both sides. He behaves awfully towards her at times. She as we'll see, ultimately behaves very badly towards him. Did you have a sense of how that was playing out? And did you think, I suppose, that in the end, it was her fear of her husband that was driving her reckless accusations of him? She is undoubtedly extremely afraid of him. Some neighbours are shocked because she actually is very outspoken. And they would say, you know, never heard a woman speak to a husband like this before in public. So they are shocked by this kind of rudeness. But I think this is a manifestation of the fact that she is actually deeply afraid of him. And I think she is outspoken because she wants to try to get people on her side. The tragic irony for her is that she gets more and more people to feel hostile towards her husband, but that doesn't quite translate towards sympathy for her, I don't think, because she is an awkward, difficult person in her own right, possibly because of her mental illness. But even so, she still doesn't kind of fit in. So as a historian studying this case, it's tempting to try to take sides almost. I hope I resisted it successfully because, you know, that's not really what we do. But I think they do both behave badly. But he is undoubtedly cruel. And of course, as a New England husband, even as a patriarch, 
he gets it wrong. People are shocked by the fact that he's so unkind to her and also cold towards their children. And I suppose part of that is that people are shocked because a failure of a marriage is an affront in itself to Puritan ideals. It's a failure of the patriarchy and it's a failure of their religious mission. This is a world where everything is symbolic of something else. Everything's a microcosm or an emblem of some other kind of social ideal or virtue or institution. So, of course, the marriage and the household is symbolic of the order of the community and the community itself is symbolic of the colony. And then the health of the colony, its godliness, its order, its propriety is symbolic of the whole Christian integrity of the Atlantic world. So there are these kind of orders. And bear in mind, a lot of this happening in 1649, around the time that Charles I is being executed. This is a crisis of patriarchy as a form of government in England too. So I'm not saying that there are direct connections between this, but there perhaps is a sense, especially given these men are also back in Springfield dependent on William Pynchon, the arch patriarch, who himself is failing in his reputation. I think there is this sense that patriarchy is wobbling a bit, both at home and maybe across the Atlantic world as well. When you see a marriage failing, I think that neighbours who maybe were having marital problems of their own are actually kind of strengthened by the fact that there is at least one worse family than you, which maybe is a sort of a modern feeling that we can slightly identify with that it can make one feel better. It's a sort of schadenfreude. And of course, the Parsons are so bad that actually they kind of do a lot of good, I think, for the feelings of self-worth of other families around them. That's interesting. It is unusual to have a witchcraft case that so clearly comes from this tension within a marriage as opposed to just outside. Quite often in witchcraft cases, you've got you know, husband defending the wife against an accusation or vice versa very occasionally. But of course, this breakdown does seem to contribute to a sense that, that actually it might be that this couple themselves are responsible for some of the things that are going wrong in society. And really, much of the substance of the accusations hangs on the loss of children. This is a society that seems to have been made up of individuals in constant grief at the loss of beloved young children. How much do you feel that the string of deaths that we have of young children at this time plays into the accusations that we see here eventually of the Parsons? I think the death of children certainly contributes, not necessarily directly in most cases to accusations of witchcraft in Springfield, but it does contribute to a general sense that God is judging the colony or judging this plantation particularly, and that maybe they have already deviated from the path of righteousness and this is God's way of punishing them. And then they need to do something about it, including removing witches from their midst. Early modern people in general are very well able to understand the natural deaths of their children. Contrary to what some people sometimes think, they don't have to blame everything on witchcraft. In fact, it's quite unusual to blame something on witchcraft. They're much more likely to think God has just taken my child from me. But there is a lot of disease, probably diphtheria maybe some kind of encephalitis, secondary to something else, smallpox for sure, certainly influenza. And so that death is very much a part of life in this community. And so that women are constantly burying their children and constantly having children as well. There are all sorts of reasons to feel anxious if you are a householder in Springfield. The health and welfare of your own family, the elements, disease, crop failure, hostile Native Americans, and most of all, one another, who are actually really, these people have lots of enemies, but their worst enemy is potentially the neighbour next door if they hate you. I think that's a really helpful corrective, that actually many children are dying and they're not all being described as being bewitched. So in the instances where we have accusations made ultimately against the Parsons that are to do with illness, why is witchcraft imputed then? Well, in all witchcraft cases, it's never straightforward. It's always part of a kind of a web of suspicion, often building up over some period of time. Sometimes people think it's a direct cause and effect. So I don't like somebody, my child dies, I accuse them of witchcraft. But that doesn't ever seem to be the case. But once you get lots of different situations and memories of those situations, lots of little conversations or snatched 
looks or gestures, it all starts to build up into something that's much thicker and layered about the way that you feel about somebody else's motives and the possibility that they might be using some kind of diabolic power, perhaps to improve their own situation, but certainly to reduce your circumstances because witches are all about spite. They're all about malice. There might not even necessarily be any rationale to it. You know, sometimes the anxieties that we have are nameless. And I think their anxieties sometimes are nameless too. And they just reflect a more general feeling of unease about the world that then gets manifested in a particular individual. One thing I love about this book that you've done is that it would have been perhaps more conventional to have told the story of the trial and the pre-trial statements and given us people's depositions. But actually, as I understand it, you've actually used the depositions, it seems to me, to create what you describe in your note later as a flow of experience. You've got this sense of putting them in chronological order. And I was struck by how impressive a piece of unravelling this was in order to try and put these events into their time and place. How did you approach the sources like this to tell this story in chronological order? We all suffer for our art, don't we? It was agonising and it took an awful, awful long time. There are three choices. I had with the deposition material, which you say that historians of crime and witchcraft often have to deal with. I had to kind of work out how to use each story that was told, whether I used it in the flow of experience at the time or whether I used it when they went to Pynchon and gave evidence or whether it came out subsequently at the trial, which happens later on. So really, I was just kind of picking and choosing and moving one from one to the other and not trying to repeat it three times, but trying to just use it once. So there was an awful lot of charts and colour coding and all sorts of things. But I didn't want it all just to come out of the trial. I didn't want it all just to come out as things happen. So I just made choices. One of the misfortunes, like many of the misfortunes, are actually seem rather trivial. They may even have seemed trivial at the time is about the failure of some puddings, like kind of haggises, I think, that a family were making, which seemed very humiliating, embarrassing and distressing to them. Now, that story is told again and again and again. They tell it, you know, at the time. They tell Pynchon several times. But again, too many puddings was not good for the story. So it was important that I told that story, but often you're trying to do it with a lighter touch. Otherwise, you know, one doesn't want the reader to glaze over, obviously. But I do think that at the time that people were thinking, well, you know, we've heard these stories before, but of course they were part of a pattern. So it wasn't a case that the pudding burst and then they accused Hugh Parsons of witchcraft. It was that that's just another thing, you know, it's just another way in which Hugh Parsons, the jealous man, the avaricious and envious man, would start to mess with little things that you relied on in your household. And I think that's very important to the story. And one of the benefits of doing it like that and getting this sort of weight of accusations played out over time is that we can feel that witchcraft reputations take a long time to build up. And also we can feel the devastation, the grief of each of these moments as they were lived through. And that is something I think that is hard for historians to capture, to help us to enter this very unfamiliar world and yet experience familiar emotions like grief can be a difficult trick to pull off. Well, I started this story really studying the history of emotions and drew on it an awful lot because this is a story which is absolutely steeped in emotion. I mean, witchcraft cases tend to be, but this is actually a case because it's so well documented where people do talk about their emotions. They do talk about anger. In fact, William Pynchon says to Hugh Parsons, perhaps the cause of your anger towards your wife was because she wished the ruin of all witches. And Mary Parsons has suggested that because she said, oh, I think there are witches everywhere, we need to get rid of them, that because he was a witch himself, that this made him angry. So there's lots of anger in the community, there's anger in the marriage, and there's also, of course, grief and there's sorrow and there's anxiety and there's fear. You get a whole range of these feelings. Again, we don't want to psychoanalyse people or to try and you know, impute how they felt, but in, this is a case where actually people say how they feel. 
And with Hugh Parsons particularly, people are most distressed because he doesn't seem to show enough emotion. He says he's trying to hold back as a man, but they find his lack of emotion a rather suspicious thing. So again, this isn't just the historian adding emotions to try to make this a novelistic experience. This is actually where the presence of emotion or the lack of it become a plot point, a turning point in one of the character's fortunes. So as we move through, we find that Mary herself has accused her husband of witchcraft extraordinarily. And then the accusations start to build up. Looking back to these incidents over time, you've mentioned the puddings. I also was struck by the fact that there are some things here which we would absolutely hesitate about. The testimony of a two-year-old boy seeing a dog under the bed or slightly mad moments like the snakes and Jonathan Taylor. Perhaps you can tell us some of these stories. Oh, well, there is a whole range of things. And individually, they do seem quite trivial. So, yes, some snakes get into a room and a man is having probably some kind of half dream about them, I think. A boy sees a dog, as you said. Mary Parsons sees a dog, which she finds suspicious when she goes walking at dusk. A trowel disappears and then it reappears. Some knives disappear and then reappear. Some milk is slightly discoloured. Every kind of area of early modern domestic life seems to have been affected at some point by some cause which then people attribute to Hugh Parsons. But again, he's not a scapegoat. It's not just blaming him because they don't like him. It's because he seems to have already expressed some ill will towards the person. So Within this world, there is a kind of a rationale for it, even if it's not one that you or I would share. And again, these things, when they start to look back on them, they do form more of a pattern, even if individually they don't seem to add up to very much. If they are acts of witchcraft, they are the acts of a vengeful man. Of course, there are other things which attribute to Hugh Parsons, including fits in the daughters of the minister, Why the minister? Well, not just because he's the minister, he's some Christian representative, but because he's argued with him about supplying him with bricks to build a chimney. There was actually an argument over this economic question. And similarly, William Pynchon's own granddaughters have died as well, which seems rather kind of mysterious. One of William Pynchon's servants falls off his horse repeatedly and hurts himself. Somebody cuts his leg with a saw. These aren't just random acts, they're all people that Hugh Parsons has crossed or threatened to be even with, as he constantly says. And so this reaches a kind of critical mass which is turned against Parsons. It's so interesting how much of it hangs on the nature of his speech towards them, his temperament being cantankerous. And we're aware of the similarity to the fact that for Puritans, I would be diminishing it to say it's justification by good speech, but there is a kind of sense in which they're made right with God, or at least demonstrate that they're right with God, with their community, by how they speak. And Hugh Parsons just fails, doesn't he? He just can't continue to demonstrate the sort of gracious, gentle speech that's necessary for maintaining good relations in a community of 200 souls. Yeah, I think those gestures are incredibly important. And everybody's watching each other. You know, everyone's very conscious of the correct ways in which to behave. Of course, some people would make greater allowances for some people. But once your credit or your reputation has run out, then everything that you do has some kind of suspicious construction put upon it or it causes offence. But actually, Hugh Parsons is just very explicitly offensive. I mean, he is rude and threatening. And so that he does go sort of beyond the pale and that once he goes to that point of no return, he can't restore his reputation in the community. It's just gone too far. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to be accused of witchcraft, but given some of the things that his wife has said and given that this creeping atmosphere of witchcraft and of the rumours of witchcraft, which are starting to affect New England by the late 1640s and the early 1650s, I think that just, again, starts to create a mood where witchcraft seems much more plausible, whereas before perhaps it was just more theoretical as an idea, something that happened somewhere else, but now suddenly seems to be happening on your own doorstep. Do you feel that those stories from the Civil War in England have made it over to New England and are influencing people there? 
It's beyond question. In fact, it's actually recorded in Pynchon's depositions that they're going to watch the suspects, watch Mary Parsons particularly, using the method of being successful with the English witch finders. They're very conscious of the fact that there has been this witch hunt and that they've used methods which have induced people to confess which aren't exactly torture, but do involve sleep deprivation, a certain kind of spiritual pressure, I think they probably would have called it, in order to see whether demonic familiars, the devil's imps, his kind of servants, would come to the witch. And that's certainly something they do for Mary Parsons. So there really is a connection. I think part of the other connection is just that these are apocalyptic times and that the devil is abroad and that everybody needs to be very vigilant and to take action to stop devil's agents gaining territory in what's, after all, supposed to be a new Israel. What I'm struck by is the fact that we seem to have this swing between scepticism and belief with witchcraft. In this case, the previous accusation against Mercy Marshfield is called out as defamation, but then the accusations are believed, and then the accusations are not so believed in sceptical Boston. In September, I was lucky enough to attend a conference in celebration of the 50 years since Sir Keith Thomas published Religion and the Decline of Magic, which Will Pawley gave a fascinating paper about witchcraft in the 19th and early 20th centuries in France. And he was focusing on doubt. And he said one example of how villagers in the 1970s talked about witchcraft. They'd say, je sais bien, mais quand même, you know, I know very well that witchcraft is not real, but all the same. And I was really struck reading your book by this thought that people had to kind of bridge this incredulity. They had to bridge the doubt in themselves to come to the point of accusing a neighbour of a crime that could lead to accusation. And they had to really be convinced in order to make that great step. When you were dealing with witchcraft as this kind of slippery crime, how did you navigate this and this swing between scepticism and belief? Well, it's a fascinating question, and it's absolutely at the heart of certainly the denouement of the book, which is that the townsfolk in Springfield really do believe that Hugh and Mary, there is something devilishly wrong with them. And they feel that from the gut. I don't think it's necessarily an intellectual judicial decision. It's not really theirs to make. They just go to William Pynchon and they say what they viscerally feel about this hostile misfit who plagues their lives. Pynchon doesn't have to decide either. He's just the recording magistrate. We don't know very much about this, but Pynchon certainly, he takes seriously the the fact they use some counter magic against Hugh Parsons, and it seems to bring him calling. So I think Pynchon definitely does believe in the possibility of witchcraft. But again, his job is to get the evidence and send it to Boston, and that's really where the scepticism kicks in. It's not our scepticism, it's not the scepticism of the existence of witchcraft, it's the scepticism that the evidence that you have is actually sufficient to convict somebody and then to have them executed. So any acquittal at a trial for witchcraft, this time and place, doesn't necessarily mean that the court is guffawing about the possibility of witchcraft, it just means that the case isn't proven. And in Massachusetts there's a particular point here which is that one needs to prove that the individual has formed a covenant with the devil. It's an extremely difficult thing to do. And this is not at all what the people of Springfield are saying, because what are they worried about? Burst puddings and discoloured milk and so on, the things that matter to them. They can't talk about these theological, demonological issues. Again, that's not their world. They just know what a witch is. They feel it. They know that this hostile person is someone you could call a witch. So when this translates actually through to the courtroom, then their words don't necessarily equate. It doesn't quite stack up towards a kind of crime for which either of these two could be convicted. So basically, they have different ideas about what a witch is. Is a witch somebody who does harmful magic or is a witch someone who makes a pact with the devil? And only one of those is provable under Massachusetts law as a crime. Well, one of the problems with witchcraft is that in the present day, everyone has a kind of sense of what a witch is. It's often the Halloween witch. It's the scapegoat. It's the woman on the hill who doesn't quite fit in, looks a bit strange. But their idea of witchcraft is very different. It's the person in your midst. It's the person who really hates you. It might be actually, despite the fact that they look normal, that might be what actually makes them most threatening. Because actually, you have to kind of uncover them through their words and their deeds. 
So there is no consensus about what a witch is. But of course, the law code does insist that it is a somebody who makes a covenant with the devil. And that is a very difficult crime to prove. So that within the sort of the rise of witchcraft prosecutions almost in New England, there is the seed of its own destruction as a crime. Because in the end, one can only really get conviction through a certain kind of effort of will and of switching off that doubt. And that sometimes, and this goes back to the history of emotions, I think, because that very powerful emotions like anger and rage and fear can provide a sort of an override on that soil, on that hesitancy, on that doubt, on that circumspection about what is actually happening in the situation, where fury just drives the case to its conclusion. But that can't happen in Boston or Springfield, because actually what happens at the end is that there aren't very many people from Springfield, even in Boston, all there is is a stack of paper. And that the Boston courts think, well, seems a bit suspicious, but can't really convict. And that's what happens. This is an interesting case, very unusual case in the sort of case that makes it into historians' books, because it is a case of the dog that didn't bark in the night and therefore gives us an extraordinary insight into the society in a way that perhaps is actually even lost sometimes when we're looking at those more unusual cases where it ended up in someone's death. That's right. And you learn a lot about the relationship between the accused and their accusers, because the thing about them is that they are so similar. I think that's one of the reasons why they hate each other so much. They find the other in one another, the strange other, despite the fact that really they live very, very similar lives. So, yes, it's a case which plays out for such a long time and leaves quite a lot of evidence, particularly about who these people are. And so that it's hard to attach those kinds of stereotypes that one might infer from a case that was not quite so well documented. We really know who they are, what they're like. Then what we see is this very messy complexity of their lives and relationships, which perhaps in the end makes it almost inevitable that nobody can conclusively prove that somebody else is a witch. One last question, Malcolm, because in your note at the end of your book on sources and methods, you quote Catherine Hodgkin saying the study of witchcraft is a place where history asks questions about itself. And I feel like there was a real wrestling here on the boundary of history and fiction. There are things to handle in terms of the fallibility of memory when it comes to dealing with these depositions. And also this goal that you have, the purpose of history of taking the strange on its own terms. I think you've pulled this off tremendously well, but I'd love to hear you talk about this process. Well, I suppose I would call it a fictive historical narrative, but not a fictional one. Hopefully, needless to say that there are not things that are made up in here. But even though this is very well documented, there's a sort of messy open-endedness sometimes to some of the stories which are told, which invite interpretation. And of course, all history requires interpretation. But I felt with this more than anything I worked on before, that choices need to be made. And I suppose this is where the reader has to trust the writer, the historian, that no violence is done to the integrity of the story. And that what I was really trying to do in the end, by taking some small liberties, I suppose, by triangulating with other evidence to make things absolutely plausible, if not absolutely definite, was to convey the spirit of this place and the spirit of the feelings in this story, which I think otherwise would have been lost if it was constantly hedged round with doubts, perhaps as a maybes and probabilities, which have tried to kind of keep to a minimum precisely to kind of back a version of the story, which I believe to be true and certainly believe to be plausible and true to those lives. And this is what I think you have done so remarkably well. And I think that you have absolutely pulled it off (laughs) because this is a work of history that does, because of that very, very well-informed, very footnoted, very scholarly leap that you've taken, allow us into these people's worlds in a way that is so hard to access otherwise. And well, so, thank you very much. I'm glad it worked. <laughs> yes, to everyone listening, I'm going to urge you to get The Ruin of All Witches, Life and Death in the New World, 
partly because the story it tells is so incredible, partly because it gives us such a wonderful insight into the realities of life in the 17th century, but also because as a work of history, I feel that this is exactly where history should be going when it's trying to tell the stories of people who are marginalised, people who are oppressed. Stories don't make it that much into the archives. This is how to do it, folks. Thank you very much. Finally, I'd be very grateful if you subscribed to Not Just the Tudors, if you haven't already, and if you'd rate and review it on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.